Okay, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. The Gribble Nation Roadcast, that is. In today's episode, we're beginning a three-part series um, on the roads of southeast Louisiana and the uh, greater New Orleans area. Uh, New Orleans is a city that I have been to a few times now, and it's one of my favorite cities to travel to outside of the northeastern U.S. And uh, in order to give us some of a local perspective on New Orleans and Louisiana in general, I brought my friend and fellow YouTuber Jason Hoffman of the 504 Road Trips YouTube channel on, and we recorded a bunch of audio of a series of conversations that we had um, not too long ago. And what emerged is this three-part series um, that I'm going to present to you now. So in this episode, we're going to deal with, this will be part one, I guess you could call it. And we'll have a little bit of an introduction into Jason and his background in this episode. Um, We'll also touch on some of the uh, roadway and waterway history around New Orleans. Um, We'll be talking about the 1946 master plan for New Orleans, which was a study done right at the end of World War II that uh, basically laid the framework for the modern city of New Orleans that we see today. And we'll also be dealing with existing highways on the West Bank side of the metro, um, and also the never-ending debacle that is New Orleans Metropolitan Airports, or New Orleans International Airports' uh, new terminal. So it's that and a lot more, and with that, I'm going to turn this conversation over to yours truly and Jason, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. Uh, you know, it's, you know what they say, it's another day in paradise, um, and for today, I want to kind of go a little bit off the beaten path, because I know that in the Rhodes community, there's a lot of areas of the country that I think are talked about quite a bit, and everybody always comes back to. And then there are some parts of our national transportation system in our in our big cities that don't really get the amount of attention that I think they should. And one of those areas is southeastern Louisiana, uh, centered around the New Orleans metro area. So to kind of shed some light on that part of the country and to kind of give us a little bit of a run-through of... New Orleans and the areas around it. Having one of my friends on YouTube, Jason Hoffman, who is the, uh, what should I call you, the czar of 504 road trips? Is that a good title for you? Czar. I'm not sure about czar. <laughs> um, I, I'm, um, the king the, of the, 504 road trips. The king. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Uh, Jason, it's good to have you on the podcast, finally. Yeah, good uh, to be here. Yeah, so for those of you out there who don't know, um, Jason, can you talk a little bit about like your background and you know your channel and all that stuff for us? Well, my background is simply... Uh... My background is simply traveling. Uh, you know, since I was a little kid, you know, uh, my my family would go on road trips um, every summer. Anytime there was a holiday, more than a few days, we were off somewhere, and it was always by road. We didn't fly anywhere. We got in a car and we went, and it was um, just something that I continued as I became an adult. I would just, you know, sometimes even when I was single and uh, younger, uh, I would just get in the car and go someplace. And I was always kind of fascinated with, uh, roads and highways and maps and, uh, you know, wondering where does this highway go and, you know, what's at the other end of it. And so I would get in the car and, and find out. And I've been driving since I was 15. And, you know, as soon as I had the freedom of the driver's license in a vehicle that I could get away from my parents, I would get in the car and go wherever I wanted. And, um, so fast forward, uh, I guess 30 years until, uh, what was it, 2016, I uh, decided to start recording with a dash cam and put it on YouTube. And uh, I think up at, at that point, I had discovered there were other people who were doing that kind of thing, uh, like you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I found the Roadway yeah. Whiz. Yeah. What's I can, that? I can say that it was partly my fault, right? 
Well, yeah, because I found your channel, and there was there was a couple of others that, uh, you know, that that were doing similar things, and um, I decided to add my own twist to it with the you know with the signs and everything that tells you where you are and what the surrounding streets are and everything because I have a background in graphics, so it was pretty easy for me to create that kind of stuff and overlay them onto the video, and um, uh, the. The, the, the scripts that I write that go with the videos, um, I wanted to be something a little more than just road cam video. Uh, although at times I wish I had just done road cam video kind of like you do, because uh, it would be a whole lot easier to, to get the videos put together and up on the, on the YouTube. Um, you know, cause I do, um, tend to spend a lot of time sometimes, uh, I have it down to where I can I can crank out a video in a couple of hours. So just a few weeks ago, we did a video together, you know, which was recorded a year in advance, and it was our, uh, a trip down to Dauphin Island from Mobile, Alabama. And for whatever reason, that video just took me forever to put it together. And I think by the time it was all over with, I had about 12 hours into the editing of that video. And I really never was happy with the way the video itself came out, but I figured that the, uh, you know, the voiceover from you would, uh, would make up for that. So, uh, well, I was going to say, you that was how with, that went. You had to deal with my voiceover. Or my well, the, it, and, and I think that's part of the problem <laughs> is because when I edit a video that I've written the script for and recorded the voiceover for, I, I kind of know, well, the videos obviously comes first, but I kind of know, how much voiceover I can put in for a, a given subject in, 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 in the video before I run out of time and I have to start talking about something else. And when somebody else records the video or records the voiceover, not even having seen the video, then I've got to kind of play with the video, especially when there's different video speeds, playback speeds involved. I have to start playing with that to make the audio fit in with the video mm -hmm. and throughout that entire thing everything that you recorded on that video on that voiceover only had to cut out one small part because i just couldn't make it fit and it was something really insignificant it was something that i had written because i did write the voiceover but you added to a lot of it so that changed everything up mm -hmm. but there was something that was just totally some totally you know, uninteresting, insignificant fact that I'd thrown in there was about the monastery that I wound up just cutting out because everything happened within about 15 seconds and there's just no room for it. And I had to let you get the part in about being the bad New York driver and missing the turn. So, yeah, I got to make sure that your audience knows about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what's relevant to the <laughs> subject yeah. of the video. So, right. So you started uh, the channel in 16. I started the channel in January of 2016. Okay, so you've been you've been a mainstay for, geez, you've just passed seven years, right? Seven years, yeah. Wow, yeah. Yep. Well, and you're still going strong, so hopefully you keep going yeah. for at least another seven years. Yeah, my problem right now is running out of material because I just haven't had that much time to travel. Well, we just got to get you up to New York sometime. Well, that is the plan, and um, the latest thing that I've started, uh, the latest series that I've started is Highway 11, um, yeah. which runs from uh, New Orleans East to Rouse's Point, New York, and that will put me somewhere up around you. I, I, actually, I'm not that familiar with the route in New York. I haven't really looked that far into it, but as of right now, we've driven to Chattanooga, yeah. and so that's probably a third of it, and at some point, we're going to have to get you know, get up to Chattanooga and, and continue it. Cause I do want to get the whole thing eventually. Yeah. I think in New York and in Northeast Pennsylvania, the, the closest you get to me is about two hours. It's well, that's still better I'm than located, the you know? 24 hours we are now, you know, if we were to get in a yeah. car and drive. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, um, Let's talk about New Orleans stuff. Now, you're very familiar with this part of the country. You're from this general area, right? Well, I'm from New Orleans, yeah. Yeah. So this is an area that you've always known pretty well. Right. Um, what's kind of like, 
I guess the thing that we should focus on first is, because I do want to turn this into a show where we just kind of run through a lot of the highlights of New Orleans and Southeast Louisiana and all that, but I, I think a good starting place, before we even get to that, is to kind of recap how we even got to the highway system that we have today. And that goes all the way back to the 1940s. Um, the city of New Orleans in 1945, right after World War II, commissioned a study, uh, which was published the following year, titled The Arterial Plan for New Orleans. And it was authored by a gentleman named Robert Moses. Now, we folks up here in New York know that name very well because he was the master planner for the city of New York and the surrounding area beginning back in the mid-1920s. And he had a career that took him all the way through the 1960s. So there was about a four-decade period where he was kind of... He was kind of in charge of the planning of, you know, the development and the highways and the transit and all that, all that stuff uh, in the New York area. But by the 1940s, he had become such a household name around the country that other cities started commissioning him to look into their urban situations and their planning and all that stuff. And one of the cities that commissioned him was New Orleans in the mid-1940s. So he comes in and he comes out with this study in 1946 titled The Arterial Plan for New Orleans. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the 1946 plan is how forward thinking it was. Because you notice that a lot of the stuff from that plan did come to fruition and did come to life in future decades. Um, some of the highlights of this plan included the construction of a new bridge over the Mississippi uh, at downtown New Orleans, which was ultimately built in 1958 as the Greater New Orleans Bridge. Also, the construction of an expressway connecting the bridge along Pontchartrain Boulevard to Jefferson Parish. That became the Pontchartrain Expressway. Um, it wasn't just roads that he was advocating for. He was also advocating for improved waterways and improved port facilities, not just on the Mississippi River, but also along the Industrial Canal. Um, the Industrial Canal had existed since the 1920s, but by the 1940s it had become a bit of an antiquated waterway that was much too small for the amount of traffic that was forecasted uh, for it to use. You know, the canal, nowadays we see the canal as connecting the Mississippi River with uh, Lake Pontchartrain, but it was expected that in the years after World War II it was going to become a much more important waterway. Um, so they were, so Robert Moses was advocating for the deepening and the widening of the industrial canal, as well as the construction of new facilities along the canal and the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway, uh, to facilitate the expansion of New Orleans capacity as a port city. And then the last, uh, item waterway related that really came back to haunt them in future years <laughs> was... <clears throat> advocating for the construction of a new waterway to directly connect the Industrial Canal in eastern New Orleans with the Gulf of Mexico. This body of water was eventually constructed in the 1960s as the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. Mr. Go. Yeah. So, and that became, that waterway became pretty notorious right in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, as we know, mm. for funneling a lot of the storm surge into that part of New Orleans. Um, in fact, the Mr. Go doesn't exist anymore. It was closed off shortly after Katrina. And that is roughly where they built the new Lake Bourne surge barrier. I think that's, I think that's been operational now for about 10 years. I really have very little concept of that. I know where the Mississippi River Gulf, Gulf outlet is or was. Um, the channel, <coughs> excuse me, the channel is still there. But I think what they did was they dammed it or put a levee across it down at the south end of it near the, you know, where it actually connected to the Gulf. But I've never actually seen that, so I really don't understand how they did it. And there's there's pictures online, but it doesn't really show the, the, the I'd, I'd really like to get a drone and fly it. And I should have I gotten you to do this while you were down here. I really would like to get a drone and fly it from the Green Bridge, which is on Paris Road at the foot of I-510, down the Mr. Go to wherever they have the whole thing blocked off. Because 
I, I don't fully understand how they close that off, and I've never been able to get a good explanation of it. Um, but that's apparently what they did was they closed it off somewhere down there where it, clo- where it opens out into the Gulf. Yeah, now, yeah. as far as the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway, I'm not sure where that goes now either because that was part of it. Um, and the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway follows the Industrial Canal, I guess, to the lake now. I'm not real sure how they uh, handled that. Yeah, so you're right that when they closed off Mr. Go, they put they put some sort of a dam like down. I think it I think they dammed it down by where like Shell Beach and Hopedale, like mm-hmm. Eastern St. Bernard Parish out that way. And when they built the surge barrier, they put a lock in where the intercoastal waterway had always been. Mm-hmm. So that so as far as I'm aware, that stretch, that body of water is still navigable, but you just have to pass through a lock at the surge barrier. Okay, um, so the all right, I, I see. I they made that. a they made a permanent you know wall where Mister Go used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way that you can get through the surge barrier is if you're going up the intracoastal. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, the, I think that channel begins right where just it's just east of the Green Bridge. On Paris Road. Okay. And then it kind of headed southeasterly from there. I know years back, and I'm talking early 80s, uh, I have an aunt that had a, a, a houseboat, and she had a dock at the Gulf Outlet Marina down off of Paris Road. And the one time we took the boat out that I was there, uh, I know you went out of the marina into the Mr. Go, and... It wasn't very far to open water, but of course this was a tiny little houseboat and she was one of those nervous people who, you know, really didn't want to have a boat. She just wanted a place to get away to and, uh, you know, so that was as far as we went. But, um, at that time I, I, you know, I mean, I didn't really even know where that was. I was very young at the time. So, um, and there was no Google maps at the time either. So it wasn't real easy to just find out exactly how everything was laid out i've seen it since then but uh that's kind of all been changed now since especially since katrina hit yeah katrina saying changed so much about those outer parishes oh yeah 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 i know i want to circle back to the highways at some point but while we're Mm -hmm. on the subject of this um if back before katrina there used to be like you guys called them camps yeah um and these were well, you can talk about this more, but they were set up along <clears throat> along the major highways, like US 11, if you took that out of New Orleans East up towards Slidell. Um, US 90 used to have a lot of camps on it, if you mm-hmm. headed east towards yeah. Mississippi. And there were a lot of camps in St. Bernard, too, I think. Um, the camps well, were basically like... Like summer houses, I think. I think that's well. They call them camps. They were houses, typically up on stilts, that they're you know above the floodwaters if that happens, and um, they're used for you know they're they're called fishing camps, hunting camps. But yeah, people tend to go out there and live out there during the summer uh, or on weekends and stuff like that. They're not specifically out there to fish or or, or uh, hunt. Although they probably do a lot, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's just a getaway. It's like a second home. And on Highway 90, and that was that's always been the route I took to get to the Gulf Coast. And uh, when you cross, when you get out beyond New Orleans East and you cross the Chef Mentor Pass and you cross the Wrigley's and you're in an area called Lake Catherine, uh, that's where... There was about probably a five-mile section of road that was lined on both sides with camps. And the camps were set back off the road, but every camp had a driveway that came in off the road and a mailbox uh, and a sign that identified the camp. And the camps all had these cute names. And, you know, there was, you know, there was one, and it was a a wooden sign shaped like a big foot. And... I, the the name of the I want to say the name of the camp was Bigfoot, <laughs> but they all had silly names like that, and 
you know, now, I mean, we're talking almost 20 years since those have existed. At one time, I could name every camp as we went along there because I had taken that route so many times and would always read the names of the signs we went. Now, I really can't remember any of the camp names anymore, um, which is another reason why I started 504 Road Trips. I wish I would have had a camera back then where I could have videoed that drive because that's something that doesn't exist anymore, and, and, and the younger generation will never really have any concept of what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, the, the camps are certainly one of those things that's, as you said, it, it's not something that you can find anymore. I mean, maybe there's right. a couple of them like here or there, but it's certainly they're not the historic landmark they used to be. No, and I mean, you can see them on, on Highway 11. There's some that remain standing. Some have been repaired, and then there's a lot of stilts where camps used to be that just are gone now since Katrina, and they never rebuilt them. Uh, there's a section of lakefront in New Orleans East along Hain Boulevard, or actually kind of towards the end of Hain Boulevard. That's called Little Woods out there. Mm -hmm. And at one time, over the levee, they had camps that extended out, you know, that they were built out over the lake uh, on stilts, like actually in the lake. And I assume it was a squatter situation where, you know, it was just accepted that these people had staked claim to these, to the public land under where these camps were built and, and they were allowed to do that just like houses at one time were built on the batcher of the Mississippi River which is on the river side of the levee. Mm -hmm. uh, I had relatives that had uh, houses uh, right at Algiers Point in the river and um, they were basically squatters but until, until the mid 80s they were just allowed to live there. Hmm. Um, St. Bernard Parish uh, the road down to Shell Beach, uh, which most of the most of that highway, once you get beyond a certain point, is just a road with water on either side. And they had a lot of camps down there, most of which are gone now. Uh, but everything from, and I can't remember what they call that area, but uh, you get to a certain point down there and and that's all it is, is it's just a road with kind of with water on either side and everything down there is a camp. Now, a lot of those people, a lot of those places are permanently lived in, but some of them are just fishing camps and, and people go back and forth and they'll spend the summer out there. They'll spend the weekends out there. And, uh, uh one thing I know they do is they get the hell out when a hurricane's coming now because, yeah. uh, anybody that didn't when Katrina was coming in or even some of the more recent ones, um, they were in trouble. Right. Yeah, I think one of the drives you're mentioning is Highway 46 from, say, like heading east out of Chalmette and then turning east at St. Bernard and then heading out to Shell Beach. Once you're outside right. the levee system there, it, it turns very quickly into, yeah, you're you're just a couple feet from being in being in the swamp. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, the the road is just an embankment in the middle of the swamp at that point. Like Highway 46, the east end of that, the south end of Highway 300, which takes you down to takes you down along Bayou Delacroix. That's another one. Um, yeah, and then even like the southern end of Highway 39 along the east bank of the river. Once you get into Plaquemines Parish, that's another very remote highway at its south end. But that it's one's remote, yeah. but it's on the natural ridge. That's formed the natural, they call it the natural levee, but basically the, you know, the land adjacent to the river is very high because it's, it's a natural levee that from, from the river carrying silt down and depositing it, the closer you get to the river, the higher the, the land is. So actually 39 is kind of in better shape than any of these other places that are just sitting at sea level. Yeah. But yeah, in general though, once you're outside the levee system, you're you're kind of you're kind of right at you're kind of living dangerously, as mm -hmm. they might say. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, let's get back into New Orleans proper. Um, you know, the highway system that developed. You know, obviously, New Orleans is protected by the largest. I think it is the largest levee system on earth for a I'm sure. city. Yeah, I, I know that Amsterdam in the Netherlands has 
some sort of flood protection system and there are a couple of cities in Belgium that have the same deal but I think New Orleans is the most extensive um, and so they certainly when they went to develop the city after World War two they they certainly took flood control into consideration but also you know with the highways that that came in they, they were certainly looking to develop other parts of other parts of the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain because as technology improved and as flood control technology improved they were able to develop more and more of what we now consider to be the metro area um, <clears throat> now you're very familiar with you know living where you are you're very familiar with um, the West Bank Expressway mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that people realize that when they first built that in the 50s um, it was not the elevated highway that it is today. They built no. it in the late 1950s as a divided highway, um, which was, it was a surface highway that had, there might have been a couple of interchanges along it, but it had traffic signals at major intersections. And yeah, there, there were no interchanges. It was regular, you know, regular non-grade separated, uh, or at grade junctions. Yeah. Uh, there and, and it was pretty much where the exits are now. So Terry Parkway, Lafayette Street, Manhattan Boulevard, then you had the tunnel, and then you had Barataria Boulevard and Ames Boulevard. Those were, and I'm pretty sure that's where the traffic lights were, and you did have traffic lights on the main line of the of the expressway. Yeah, when they call it expressway, it's not. It wasn't a full freeway. Right, but that was more the concept of what an expressway was back then, and I've been to other places where they had similar things. I mean, most of them have been upgraded now. They built the uh, the elevated expressway starting in, like, I guess the early 80s, and it was completed around 1990. Uh, no, it was later than that, because it wasn't complete when I graduated high school. Uh, it was probably 92, 93 when they finally finished it all the way to where it goes back down to ground level. Um, but I do have memory of, of, of before there was any express, any elevated expressway at all there. And it was just the ground level, but I was very young. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you were, you were alluding to the tunnel, uh, right. a moment ago. That's the Harvey tunnel under the Harvey canal, which is right. one of, well, right now it's one of the three automobile tunnels in the state of Louisiana. Right. Um, the other ones are, one of them is in Homa, underneath the Intracoastal Waterway. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is, again, not that far from Harvey. It's the Bell Chase Tunnel under the Intracoastal, um, in Bell Chase in Northern Plaquemines Parish. Mm -hmm. um, although that one, as, you, as we know, is, is going to be going away in the next couple of years. So we'll right. be down to two tunnels. But uh, the the Harvey Tunnel, I don't think is going anywhere because that was that originally served the the original main line of the West Bank, but now right. it serves the uh, service road. Right. It's a service road defaults into the tunnel, so I suspect that that tunnel won't be going anywhere anytime soon. No, I don't, I don't think they're going to be doing anything with that one. The Bell Chase Tunnel is being removed out of necessity because they just can't expand anymore. The only thing they can do is replace. Uh, the Harvey Tunnel doesn't see nearly as much traffic because it's just a serve, you know, it just it connects the service roads. Yeah. So, is the Belt Chase Tunnel being removed because they are deepening the Intracoastal? Is that what is that what's going on, or is are they just replacing the tunnel because it leaks and it's? Well, it's the just... tunnel has leaked since uh, you know since it was built. Uh, that that that's a problem. And I did a lot of research on the tunnel because I was trying to put together a documentary on it that I never finished. But uh, the tunnel has leaked since the late '60s, and um, they've made they made all kind of attempts to repair it. It's not really a threat. It's not like the tunnel's going to cave in and uh, drown everybody in the tunnel, but it's unnerving to people. But the the fact is that the bridge is two lanes. Uh, the tunnel is two lanes. <clears throat> So you've got two lanes going in each direction, and they feel like that's it's too much of a choke point. I don't think the new bridge is going to have more than two lanes going in each direction, but 
it's going to be less, you know, people want to slow down because they're going into the tunnel and people want to slow down because they're going over the drawbridge and then the drawbridge goes up and stops everybody for 15 minutes. That's the main reason why they're putting up this high rise. It's not going to be any kind of a drawbridge and it's going to carry traffic in both directions and it's just going to eliminate the choke points and it's going to make, you know, it's just going to allow more traffic flow through there. Yeah. I think the belt chase tunnel goes back to the early fifties which is around the same time they built the Harvey Tunnel. It was, yeah, they were built within, they were pretty much built at the same time. Yeah, I think that that sounds right, yeah. And then the the original two-lane tunnel was complemented by the drawbridge, I guess in the 60s or 70s, something the, like that. Yeah, the bridge um, came later. Uh, I'm trying to find my notes on this. Yeah, because the, oh. the drawbridge carries the northbound lanes, and then they reconfigured the tunnel to carry the southbound lanes of Highway 23, or Belt Chase right. Highway. The original tunnel was, was two-way traffic, which I can't imagine now, because it is kind of narrow. The lanes aren't full width, uh, or at least not what we expect nowadays. Uh, it wasn't as narrow as the old Huey P. Long Bridge, but uh, <laughs> that's another one we should touch on at some point. Right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I know one of them. I thought Belch, the Belt Chase Tunnel was considered to be the first fully automatic underwater tunnel. Um, you know that was capable of blowing out all the exhaust fumes and stuff like that, and pumping its water and pumping any leakage or, wa- or rainwater out without having to have an attendant on duty. Oh, that's um, interesting. So it was, so the first automated. Right. Oh, that's, okay. But the Harvey Tunnel is also automated. Mm-hmm. Let me try searching automated and maybe I'll find it. Of course, nope. Automatic. Here we go. Uh, let's see. The Bell Chase Tunnel and Companion Tunnel under the Harvey Canal at Harvey will be the first completely automatic underwater vehicular traffic tunnels anywhere in the world. Hmm. Uh, tunnel air will be changed every two minutes with automatic electric pumps. Drainage pumps that go into operation with the start of rainfall will keep the tunnel dry under any conditions. And the tunnel is designed to last more than 100 years. <laughs> well... They almost made it to a hundred with the yeah. <laughs> with the Bell oh, Chase Tunnel. It's yeah. what fifty, well, no, seventy years. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't I don't have any notes about when the Harvey Tunnel was completed. But I know they were very close, you know, and they're really identical. Other than that, the Harvey Tunnel is a twin tunnel. I don't know why they didn't build a twin tunnel at Bell Chase. Yeah, I mean, I, I gather that Bell Chase wasn't the suburban community that in the early 50s that it became later. No, no, there wasn't much down there other than Calendar Airport, which became the Naval Air Station. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I would guess the, Pla- the, the, the population of Plaquemines Parish back then probably wasn't much more than 10,000. Because uh, there weren't, the, you know, Bell Chase was not a developed community like it is. Uh, you probably had more people living down in Burris and Port Sulphur than um, than you did in Bell Chase. Yeah, I think Bell Chase was just originally it was just a plantation community, and then pretty much somewhere somewhere along the way there it became sort of an exurb of New Orleans. But, right. Um, yeah, I, I I imagine that that transition hadn't happened in the early '50s. Otherwise, they would have planned for it. Right. See, and this is kind of surprising. The population of Plaquemines in 1950 was 14,239. At the 2020 census, it was only 23,515. So the population, I mean, it's grown over the last 70 years, but not as much as I would have thought. But I think what's happened is that the population has shifted from the south part of the parish that's prone to flooding and hurricanes up more towards Belchase. Yeah, that would make sense. Belchase um, is much more, you know, much safer from flooding. And it's it's much closer to the major population center. So, yeah, that, I can see that. Especially right. in the last 15 years or so. 
there might have 2020 been a- bell chase has 10,579 so that's nearly half the population of the parish yeah so and it, that's pretty much been like that since 2000 yeah yeah i can i can i can see how there would be a shift there at some mm-hmm. point yeah New the new bridge over the intercoastal is due to be completed, I think, in twenty twenty four, the end of twenty twenty four, something like that. And then they're gonna remove the existing bridge, the existing northbound bridge and the southbound Bell Chase Tunnel as part of this project. The other thing that a lot of people are not too pleased about is that the new bridge on Bell Chase Highway is gonna be a toll bridge. Yeah, so that'll be that'll be interesting to see. There is one other free bridge over the Intracoastal Waterway that would get you from Bell Chase into Jefferson slash Orleans, and that is the Woodland Bridge. On it's uh, just Orleans. That's outside of Jefferson completely. <laughs> yeah, so the only way to get to Jefferson from there would be to go through Orleans on the the Woodland Bridge, which is General de Gaulle. Right, and then head back west from there. Um, so I would imagine there's going to be an interesting shift in traffic patterns and traffic habits once this new bridge comes online. Not just because there's a bridge that is a high-rise bridge that shouldn't cause that many backups anyway, but also the fact that people don't want to, you know, people will want to bypass the toll bridge. So right. that's going to put a lot more traffic on General de Gaulle than there has been in recent years. And that's so. not a good thing because de Gaulle already can't handle the traffic that it has in the mornings, well, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, right. heading, heading across the river. Um, well, de Gaulle is basically the main street of Algiers, would you say right. that's fair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Algiers that's... is the one section of the city of New Orleans that's on the west bank of the river. Um, right. So from Algiers Point all the way down to the Intracoastal Waterway along the Mississippi River. Um, and beyond. Yeah, it even stretches beyond that down towards right. English Turn, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's still Orleans Parish down that way. And, General and part of the city of New Orleans. Right, so yeah, we should clarify that the city of New Orleans and Orleans Parish are one and the same. Right. When we talk about them, the city and the parish are at the same level. Um, they're they're basically synonyms of each other, if you will. Right. Um, but yeah, so General de Gaulle is the is the is the boulevard that takes you from the Crescent City connection down through Algiers from the vicinity of Algiers Point, although not quite in that same spot, but down in a southeasterly direction to the Intercoastal Waterway. If you get a much larger influx of traffic because of the new toll bridge on Bell Chase, that's going to really make things interesting and not in a good way. And I think it's going to be a toss-up of whether, and, and, and we're talking Plaquemines Parish residents, because that's going to be the primary people who use the bridge, they're going to get a deeply discounted uh, toll with, with a transponder. Um, it's going to be whether, it's going to be a toss-up of whether they want to pay the 30 cents or whatever it costs to cross the bridge or tangle with the traffic on De Gaulle. And I guess that's going to be, you know, that's going to vary, you know, depending on the person. Uh, Some people just don't want to pay a toll no matter what. I don't really blame them. Um, But it's all going to be cashless tolls. So it's not, that's not going to slow anybody down. But I guess if you, if you're crossing that bridge twice a day, that that adds up, and people around here are not used to having to pay tolls. We haven't had a toll in the Crescent City Connection now, and I guess it's been about 10 years since they removed those tolls. Um, and unless you're crossing the causeway or going down to Grand Isle, you don't pay a toll right. for anything around here. Yeah, so you just mentioned the two toll facilities that are currently in Louisiana. Right. Um the gateway to the Gulf Expressway on Highway 1, and then the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway, which connects uh, suburban Jefferson Parish in the Metairie area with the north shore of the lake up by Mandeville. Um, I did cross the causeway when I, was in, uh, when I was in the vicinity back in February, 
Mm-hmm. And the toll is, I don't know if it had gone up recently. I don't remember it being as high as $5, but that's what I paid. Is it $5? It's $5 southbound, yeah. So <sighs> I, they must have raised that. Cause I they they, like they might have. Down. It's so yeah. rare that I cross it uh, that I, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> yeah, the last time you crossed it, there was only one bridge there. <laughs> um, I'm not that old. No, that, okay. No, that that's uh, yeah, I'm not quite that old. But I do remember when it was a dollar fifty in each direction, and so that that goes back to probably the early '90s when they still collected tolls on the on the North Shore. So you paid a dollar fifty going both ways. And I remember when they eliminated that. You know, we'd take a ride up onto the North Shore from. Metairie up to St. Tammany Parish and then either go over to I-55 or I-10 to come back because we didn't, you know, that way we could get by, get back without paying a toll. Uh, Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that the causeways construction did was mm -hmm. it really opened up the North shore into the suburbia slash exurban development. Oh yeah. Yeah, It was like a resort area before that. And, and, it was difficult to get to. You had to take a boat or you had to drive a long way around. Yeah. But now communities like Mandeville and Covington and Madisonville, those are all bedroom communities now for New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It's amazing just how building a bridge across the lake, which when they built the original bridge in the 50s, it was the world's longest bridge over water. Um, depending on how you classify it, it might still be. Um, they added yeah, the parallel is. span in the 1960s. <laughs> yeah. So they added the parallel span in the late 1960s. So that's the shape that it has today. Right. Um, the, the causeway is an interesting experience if you've never done it. Um, I've done... I did a round trip over it in 2017, my first time in New Orleans, and then I did another round trip this past winter. And this past round trip that I did, I got to experience something that I hadn't experienced before, which is when you get out on the lake, one of the things that happens with a bridge as long as the causeway is that weather conditions over the course of the drive can change pretty quickly and pretty drastically. So, for instance, you could be, let's say you're going south from Mandeville to Metairie, and it's, you know, partly cloudy, the sun's out, and then at mile 15 or so on the causeway, boom, a thunderstorm. And Mm. then at mile 5, as you approach Metairie, oh, the sun's back out. You know, that kind of thing. I would imagine this happens a lot more often in the summer. Um, but yeah, the, the weather conditions and how quickly they change out on the lake, um, certainly adds another dimension to the, the experience of the drive. And then the other thing that you got to be careful of is that if you get on the causeway and there's an incident, you're stuck, <laughs> right? Cause I mean, there are pull off areas every couple of miles, I think, but there's not there's no there's no alternate route. I mean, unless you're driving a hovercraft or something, you're not going to jump off onto the lake or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like what if like if you get on at Mandeville, you're stuck for the next 23 miles. And this and the reason I bring this up is because I happened to be listening to uh WWL radio not too long ago and there was they were reporting on a major incident right at the Metairie end of the causeway, like right as you hit Causeway Boulevard. And it had the entire boulevard closed, like right at the end of the bridge there. Um, And (laughs) the best part was it was at rush hour. Um, And, I mean, it was like a four or five mile standstill backup. But that's, that's what happens. Like if you're on the causeway, and something happens, there's there's no way for you to bail out and go another way. Like, you're stuck on it. Well, you can, but, I mean, in a situation like that, say you're sitting in traffic at, you know, at mile, uh, at mile three, you know, having already driven 20 miles, and you hear on the radio, you know, causeways will be closed for two hours because they have to, you know, whatever, clear vehicles from an accident. 
Well, you might have a crossover right there where you could make a U-turn, but what are you going to do? Drive 20 miles back to Mandeville, then another five miles to I-12, and then another 50-something miles to go around the lake to get to Metairie. That's going to take two hours, plus there's going to be extra traffic up there because it's rush hour and there's an accident on the causeway. That could take two and a half, three hours to do that. So what are you going to do? You don't have any option but to sit there in the traffic. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, so that that's the one thing about the causeway is that it's it was really a boom for the north shore of the lake, but in the same time it's it's a very fragile connection um, mm-hmm. to that part of the metro. I think that well, St. Tammany and those parishes on the north shore weren't always part of the official New Orleans Metropolitan Statistical Area or MSA. Mm-hmm. I think that that that's a relatively recent change. Um, um. And by relatively recent, I mean, well, by relatively recent, I mean, like, within the last 50 years. Okay, well, yeah, that, yeah. Because I was going to say, throughout my lifetime, um, which I'm not quite 50 years old, but uh, throughout my lifetime, that's always been considered part of the metro. The causeway, like I said, is an interesting experience. Uh, Definitely. As far as as bridges go, if you've never done it, I, I I would highly recommend that one. And another thing I wanted to mention, I thought you were going to bring up, but you didn't, is when you get to about mile 13 on the or 12 on the causeway, you're about halfway through, there's actually a point where you can't see land in either direct in any direction. Uh, the 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 land drops below the horizon to the north. Now to the south, you can see tall buildings sticking up, but you can't see the land above the horizon. Uh, when you're looking towards Metairie. Uh, in fact, you can see the skyline of the city of New Orleans that appears to just kind of be hovering uh, because there's nothing for it to anchor to, and sometimes the water will blend into the sky, and it looks like it's just kind of hovering there because you can't tell where the horizon is. You know, I'm glad you brought that up about the seeing the skyline because that was one of my favorite parts of driving the causeway in the southbound direction was... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the skyline just kind of like you can't see the south south shore of the lake if you're going southbound, um, but you can see on a clear day you can see you know the the skyscrapers of the CBD and you can see the Superdome, the top of the dome from yeah from the car. You don't see the whole dome; you see the top of the dome. Right. Yeah. Which I which I always thought was cool because you know the Superdome is unusual in that it is such a prominent part of the city's profile um the like the skyline and all of that usually you don't have sports stadiums that take on that kind of a role Mm -hmm. um but the superdome is i mean it's a unique structure um from an engineering standpoint too so um it's really interesting from that perspective but yeah to see like the to see the skyscrapers and to see the top of the superdome just kind of sticking out above the above the skyline, you know, 20 miles away or whatever. It, it's really, it's, it's a, it's an interesting uh, sight. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. You also kind of get a similar view along those lines. If you're coming in from slide L on I 10 mm-hmm. and you kind of hit that high rise part of the twin spans. Yeah. As you, as you start to head towards Irish Bayou and New Orleans East, you kind of get a similar view from, from that spot. Although it's not as, it's not as dramatic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree. But yeah, speaking of I ten, um, so the the you know, the aftermath of the nineteen forty six study had kind of recommended certain highways, but in a subsequent study that was done in the nineteen fifties added certain highways to the New Orleans freeway system. One of these in taking into account the interstate highway system, which had just been become a thing in 1956, the route of Interstate 10 through New Orleans, which was eventually routed along, uh, coming in from the east on Slidell, and then through what became known as New Orleans East, and then down along Claiborne Avenue along the elevated structure, and then eventually exiting town on the Pontchartrain Expressway, which was built... I think the expressway was built from Claiborne to the river first in the late 50s. Uh, This was done in conjunction with the construction of the Greater New Orleans Bridge around the same time. 
And then from Claiborne out to West End and Jefferson Parish was built in the early 60s. That was more of an interstate system project, um, just to kind of connect downtown New Orleans with what they were forecasting would become bedroom communities in places like Metairie and Kenner. Um, I believe the airport, Moisson Airport goes back to before then, I think, in Kenner. That that had been there for a while, but I don't think... Yeah, it goes back to the, the 40s, I think. Yeah. But it wasn't an international airport. It was just a field, you know, Moisant Field, uh, Moisant Stockyard is what MSY stands for. Um, it, the, the original terminal building, which was still part of the airport up until the new terminal, the most recent new terminal opened a couple of years ago, dates back to the 40s. Uh, and it has that kind of Art Deco style, but it was kind of hidden by the rest of the terminal that was added on to it later. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of one of those never-ending construction projects now, is the flyovers. Mm-hmm. That they want to connect to I-10. And they're starting to take shape now. They're finally starting to take shape. Oh, yeah. I don't they know if you fantastic. saw that. Yeah. Um, they actually have road decking on one of them, at least. I noticed the last time I drove by there. Well, wasn't the idea originally to open the flyovers along with the terminal? That, no. That would have, that would have seemed no. to have made a lot more sense. They, the whole thing was so convoluted. They built that terminal, but didn't have any plans for connecting it to roads. And it's like one hand didn't know what the other hand was doing. And just to get it connected, just to get like the ramps and stuff within the airport, you know, to get to the, you know, where you get dropped off and picked up and all that stuff and the parking garages, just to get those connected to Veterans Boulevard, they didn't really have a a real good plan for doing that. And the whole connection to I-10 was completely an afterthought. It it was so mishandled. uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know how they could have screwed that up that bad. It the 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 flyovers and all that should have been that should have been done first. You know, they should have at least connected I-10 to Veterans Boulevard right there where you enter the airport before they even completed the airport. Well, yeah, I mean, cuz what's the use of a brand new terminal if you can't get to it? Right, you exactly. Know? So so it, like right now when you drive I-10 out in the area of where the new terminal is, there's a backup of at least a mile long every day yeah. at that Loyola Drive exit because yeah. that's the closest interchange to where the new terminal is. And, of course, they don't have the new flyovers to you know make that connection directly. So all this traffic for the airport now gets dumped onto these local streets that right. never used to – that never used to be the case, even with the old arrangement. No, I mean, that Loyola Drive between I-10 and Veterans was never meant to carry any kind of traffic. Uh, the the median, you know, between the two sides of Loyola Drive was like an American Legion hall in a parking lot. or It was either American Legion or Lions Club or one of those, uh, you know, where they set the land aside for certain organizations. It was one of those type of things, VFW, whatever. But that's how little traffic there was on Loyola Drive because there wasn't really anything on that end of Veterans. You couldn't, you weren't anywhere near being able to access the airport from that end of Veterans before. Uh, so there was no reason for anybody but local traffic to go out there. And all of a sudden, you've got, you know, 20,000 vehicles a day or whatever it is that goes to the airport going through this little corridor. And they, 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 they changed it up a little bit and they got rid of the American Legion hall and they widened out the roads, but that was, that's not really the solution that they needed because you still got to go through a red light at, at I 10 and Loyola. And then you've got another traffic signal at Loyola and veterans. And that's been expanded into such a huge intersection. You know, it's one of those eight way cycles, uh, that just takes forever to get through, uh, it, it 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 just it everything there was planned so poorly. Yeah, I feel like it would have worked if they had the flyovers completed in time for the new terminal. Right, right. Because then you could have just switched it all over at once. But then yeah. 
because the flyovers got delayed for whatever reason, you know, now you're stuck with a, a temporary solution that is just a nightmare. Yeah. For, you know, I'm sure the locals aren't happy about it because, you know, Veterans no. Boulevard, as you mentioned, is, a, I mean, that's a, that's one of the main local streets in Kenner. Yeah, so but when you get yeah. to that end of Veterans, there's not really that much resident. I mean, there's a lot of apartments and stuff like that, but there's a lot of commercial industrial off that end of, of uh, Veterans. Yeah. Um, it's not that much of a residential neighborhood once you get past, like, the old airport access road. Once you get down there, most of the residential portion is on the lake side of I-10. But they still have to use Loyola Drive to connect with I-10 to get out of there and go anywhere else. You know, if they want to go to Metairie to go shopping or go to New Orleans, they have to take Loyola Drive and get on I-10 and, 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 you know, contend with all that airport traffic because there's no other easy way to get out of that part of Canter. Yeah, right. You know, you can take surface streets and work your way back towards Metairie like that, but that's just as bad as trying to deal with the airport traffic to get back on the interstate. Yeah, it's a mess. You know, that's for sure. But I, I, you know, I assume it's going to get a lot better when they when they open up the ramps, which is supposed to be sometime later this year. But that, but that's been delayed a few times. Yeah, well, we've had hurricanes and stuff like that that just shut everything down. Uh, we had Hurricane Zeta that um, was a direct hit here, although it was over with pretty quick. That slowed everything down. And then Hurricane Ida just shut everything down for two or three weeks, I guess. And it was actually worse out there than it was in New Orleans. The further west on I-10 you went, the worse the, the damage got. So, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of damage overpasses would have taken. The portalettes might have gotten blown off of the off of the overpass. Uh, yeah. So they would have had to get new Porter Johns put up there so that the workers would have a place to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, they did mention Ida as being a, a major roadblock for their for their construction schedule, which yeah. is understandable considering how big of a storm that was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's the that's the never ending airport saga. Mm. We'll see. We'll see if it gets better <laughs> anytime soon. Um, this concludes part one of my three part conversation with. Jason Hoffman of 504 Road Trips on YouTube. Certainly hope you enjoyed it, and hope you'll join us for part two, which is coming up next. You've been listening to an episode of the Gribble Nation Roadcast, a product of Spotify for Podcasters, and you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode, and until the next one, happy travels. Take care, be well, and I'll talk to you later. Take care. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good. Good, so uh, the horse was from Schenectady? Excuse me? The horse, the 18 horse was from Schenectady? You're losing me. I don't know what you're saying. And from Belmont, the one who won. What horse are we talking about now? The one that won Belmont. What Belmont? The Belmont Stakes. The Belmont Stakes hasn't happened yet. Oh, okay. Then I'm lost, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, you are completely no, 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 lost. Mike, Mike, I mean, completely. Wait, you think they've run the Belmont Stakes this year already? That's what someone told me. It's really? connected to the 18 horse. She wants me to put money on it. it That's the horse. You think that someone, you, you think they ran the Belmont Stakes already this year? That's what someone told me, and I'm wrong. Well, wait a second. Uh, so you've never watched the horse race, then? I've watched it. I've Did you watch the Derby on Saturday? I go a medal uh Did you watch the Derby on Saturday? Oh, the Derby was 18 from Schenectady? I don't know what you're saying. What are you Who saying won? about... Where was the horse from? Who won? From Schenectady? What are you talking about? Schenectady, New York. What horse from Schenectady? Who won the race, Mike? A horse from California? Oh, okay. I'm in LA. But anyway. Wait, wait, listen, when you get back from Mars, call us, okay? Okay, okay. please.